Happy Memorial Day weekend holiday. I trust Alberto will not put too great a damper on your festivities or plans, but the Lord obviously keeps the rain coming. So let's pray and we'll dive in. Father, we thank you for your goodness to us in Christ Jesus. We're thankful for uh, the country we live in, the, those who serve currently, those who have served, those who have died in harm's way to protect our freedoms. Lord, we are abundantly blessed in this part of the world that you have sovereignly ordained in where, which creates our boundaries and place of living. We are thankful and we remember this weekend. It makes us think of the one who supremely lived and died for us that we might live in him for all eternity. We ask, Lord, in his name today that you'll be with us in this challenging session as we consider the grand work of salvation that you planned, executed, and hold us fast for. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I uh, <coughs> would love for you to turn to page 58 in your notebooks. We'll pick up where we left off last week. I want to commend to you a couple of resources that we have in our resource center. It's this uh, couple of weeks on what we teach. Reformed theology is particularly challenging and you'd like to go a little bit deeper. This is one of my favorite all-time books on the subject, uh, written from a pastoral and not too theologically and biblically verbally strenuous, if that would make any sense. Not, not overly academic. Um, and yet, spot on, Richard Phillips, what's so great about the doctrines of grace? This is just perhaps the best thing I can commend to you if you're interested in um, a little more in-depth. There are plenty of others, trust me, but I mean, there is a bibliography at the back of tab two if you care to look at it, but I commend this to you. I checked, we're out of stock right now. I will remedy that by next week, so. Um, that, and then another um, helpful resource which is in stock in the Resource Center is Daniel Hyde's book, Welcome to a Reformed Church. That is the kind of buzzword that we're using to um, characterize our tradition and our emphases. Um, it, it contains a lot of different things beyond the tulip, but the tulip is in there. This is another helpful uh, resource if you're kind of new to this way of looking at things and this label, so I commend those to you. We're picking up um, with our discussion with this acronym that is helpful for taking a look at. Again, remember, we, we, we considered last week as we introduced this concept of being a confessional church with our London Baptist Confession of Faith and having this history rooted in the Protestant Reformation that the five solas was one rubric that came out of that movement called the Protestant Reformation that defined what we're about and then a century later in the Synod of Dort and the Canons of Dort which came forth with this acronym TULIP or what we refer to as the Doctrines of Grace. We were looking at simply, <laughs> simply, how naive is that? Um, simply put, how God saves sinners. And we started last week with the T, which stood for what? Saving Christ. 
total depravity, and we, we, we tweak that half. We put the word radical in front, saying that sin has radically affected our mind, our emotions, and our will. And um, I wanted to finish, I don't think I read this last week, but on page 58, John Piper's quote that comes, maybe we did, but let's review it again. It's hard to exaggerate the importance of admitting our condition to be this bad. If we think of ourselves as basically good or even less than totally at odds with God, remember, slave to sin, an enemy of the Lord, dead in trespasses and sins, and blind were the four word pictures that we took away from the New Testament. Our uh, grasp of the work of God and redemption will be defective, but if we humble ourselves under this terrible truth of our total depravity, we will be in a position to see and appreciate the glory and wonder of the work of God discussed in the next four points. And that really is my aim. Um, to be perfectly honest, I am late to this perspective in my own journey. It's only been a little over a decade that I have landed here in feeling like this really does communicate what the Bible teaches about how God saves sinners, and it has caused my, albeit still looking through a glass darkly, um, I'm sure there's plenty more I still have to learn and could appreciate, my, my delight in and my regard for the glory of God is greater than ever in terms of having come to grips with and landing on, you know, these things really do as best I can tell, like a Berean. Remember the Bereans from Acts 17 last week? Why were they more noble than the Thessalonians? What did they do? Search the scriptures to see if the things taught by Paul is true. Having done that on my own as best I can, here's where I land. I want to commend it to you and trust that you'll be Bereans as well as you take into account that our plight is really this bad really this bad as sinners uh, dead in our trespasses and sins. And all three members of the Trinity have conspired together gloriously to save a number greater than anyone can number from every tribe, tongue, nation, and people group. Because the U will emphasize the Father's role, the L will emphasize the Son's role, and the I will emphasize the Spirit's role. And we will come full circle back to the end to our situation, but as new creatures destined for the throne. So, we're going to pick up today with the you, like I promised, unconditional election. We began to wade in there last week. The idea that God has chosen his people not based on anything that they have done, but based on his own free grace, the believer freely chooses God because God has chosen him. And we want to now begin to talk about, and we will get to Richard's question that he posed at the end of last week. I haven't forgotten. As part of waiting in here. Paul's explicit teaching deals with the facts of and objection. Did we get to those blanks last week? We didn't unpack Romans 9, I know, but the facts and objections, the facts and objections of life. 
I didn't give you those. That's what we have in the blank there. Can I have a reader? Uh, this, this is long. I'll probably interrupt you. Please forgive me, but I'll have my reader. This, uh, trans, um, this goes past page 58 on to 59. Can someone um, begin here in Romans 9? Paul is beginning to address the problem of the Jews as God's chosen people and why not all were saved and as if the objection is somehow the plan of God in redemption did not work. He's starting to deal with that in Romans 9, verse 6. Who'd like to get us kicked off today and, and read? Thank you. But it is not as though the word of God has failed. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. And not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said. About this time next year, I will return, and Sarah shall have a son. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told, the older will serve the younger, as it is written, Jacob I love, but Esau I hate it. Okay, let's stop there, because there we're talking about the fact of election. The answer to your question from last week was, Israel, God's chosen people, absolutely. God's ordained plan in the unfolding of redemption is that that blessing that started with Abraham, like we've been tracking in Genesis, then to Isaac, and then to Jacob, forming a people that Moses brought forth under the constitution of the law of God, the Mosaic Code, was to happen through a um, physical descent of Israel. But Paul says, now, make sure you understand that just because you were born a Jew didn't make you God's chosen Israel. What happened is that if you were a child of the promise, putting faith in the hope of a Messiah, that's true spiritual Israel, of which we, the church, are a continuation in one covenant of salvation. So, it's careful to distinguish that just because you're born a Jew doesn't make you part of spiritual Israel. You had to have that hope and faith and the promise. So, what Paul is saying is, though, here, that the fact is that God, in his uh, grace and wisdom, has determined that this promise would come through a certain offspring or line. And the fact of election starts where, by the way? Let's turn the page to page 59. We'll come back and pick up again. But let's turn. Concerning the fact of election, Paul lists three generations of God's choosing in the text that Christopher just read for us. Where did it start? Who did God choose, humanly speaking, to begin the line of blessing? Abraham. Abraham. Not, pick another name. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, or whoever. And Ur of the Chaldees, God comes and calls, chooses Abraham, not a Saul or a, um, you know, you're thinking of other biblical names, but not Joe, not, not Sam, not, he picks Abraham. 
And then Abraham has Ishmael, and he thinks that's going to be the heir. And God says, no, I will give you the child of the promise. And who is first? Isaac. Isaac. Why is it Isaac, according to this text? A child of the promise. I return, Sarah shall have a son. And not only so, but also when Rebecca had conceived children, what were their names? Jacob and Esau. Remember the war in the womb? And what was the oracle? The older shall serve the younger. Jacob I loved, Esau I hated. Wow. Relatively speaking. Fact of election is all three. Abraham as opposed to someone else. Now we're back on page 59. Isaac instead of Ishmael and Jacob instead of Esau. Romans 9.11 Though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad in order that God's purpose of election might continue not because of works but because of his call. Other texts that teach the fact of election include, can I have a reader for, I'm going to come back, Christopher, to you when we get back to um, Romans 9. Can I have a reader for Deuteronomy 7, 7 to 8? Hello. Thank you. because you were more in number than many other people, then the Lord set his love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all people. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers, that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. So there, Richard, is a text specifically speaking to God's choosing the nation, the generational descent physically of the Israelites in the Old Testament for uh, the means whereby he would bring his blessing plan to fruition. Someone else, John 15, 16, the words of Jesus. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you <coughs> that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you. Acts 13, 48, someone else, please. And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord as many were appointed to not and as many as believed were appointed to eternal life. As many as were appointed to eternal life believed. Top of page 60. Someone else, Romans 11, 5 to 7. These are worth looking at. Verse 2, at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by God. But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, works would no longer be grace. What then? Though the world failed to obtain what is what he planned, the elect obtained it, but the rest were hardened. Mm. Ephesians 1, 4 and 5, someone else. We're going to just run right through these. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, <coughs> that we should be holy, holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of the Lord. I will grant you that this is challenging stuff, but if you come to grips with this, as someone who has heard the Spirit's call and responded in repentance and faith, you think about this. The Father, before the foundation of the world, set his affection upon you, 
chose and predestined and before that foundation of the this was an eternal plan. That in the some of you uh, I think twenty twenty first century way back before time was, this was in the heart of our great sovereign God, this plan that determined that each of you would come to know Christ and be part of this great redemptive um, undertaking. First Thessalonians 5, 9, For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. And 2 Thessalonians 2.13, we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, beloved by the Lord, because God shows you as the first fruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. Now, here's an important point. God's foreknowledge is not the same thing as God's foresight. There are some who will teach their way around some of the hard parts of this doctrine by saying, well, God chose because he looked down the corners of time and he knew that Tony, when Tony was ever confronted with the gospel, would repent and believe and because he had that foresight, therefore he chose. But that would make election conditional on the knowledge of God that you would choose. To properly understand the word foreknowledge as it's represented here in Romans 8, 29 and 30, we have to think in a different way. Can I have a reader for Romans 8, 29 to 30, please? For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. This is sometimes referred to as the golden chain of salvation. Do you see where it starts? For those whom he, what? Foreknew. Here's the word that we're talking about. These he also predestined to become conformed. And those he predestined, he called. Those he called, he justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. Great word, by the way. This is extra, no, 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 no additional charge. The word glorified is in the past tense. It's as if it's already happened. Is anybody in the room be glorified yet? <laughs> okay, in a sense. But you're still dealing with the remaining sin, right? But Paul speaks of your glorification as if it's already done. That's how certain the thing it is because of what God has planned. Because what God plans, he unfailingly accomplishes. Those who he foreknew. To foreknow in biblical terminology, can I make up a word? I'm a teacher, of course I can. It's to forelove. To foreknow is to forelove. Let me make a case for that biblically. Jeremiah 1.5. May I have another reader? Speaking to the prophet. Mm -hmm. Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I consecrated you. I appointed you a prophet to the nations. Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Anybody grow up on the King James Version or have some, I would say, remember how in the account with Adam and Eve, it says that Adam blanked Eve and she conceived. Anybody know what the word is? Newer. Newer. It's a euphemism for physical intimacy. 
here is speaking of the spiritual intimacy of God's for loving, knowing of you, in terms of, now he was talking about Jeremiah the prophet, but here's another great text in Amos 3, 1 to 2. May I have another reader, please? Hear this word that the Lord has spoken against you, O people of Israel, against the whole family that I brought up out of the land of Egypt. The only have I know, the only have I know, known of all the families of the earth. Therefore I will punish you in all the earth. So here again, the concept of knowing, an intimate knowing and loving and choosing. So the, the nuance is, is that the Lord set his affection upon and then predestined. It was his, his decree to predestine and to choose a people for himself. That is the fact of election. Now, before I open it up to some questions and our comments, let's turn back to page 58. Just as you pick up again, now let's talk about objections to election when Paul says in verse 14. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, For this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. You will say to me then, Why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, Why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction, in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy? which he has prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. <laughs> I know I'm asking you to work hard here this morning. Press in with me, top of page 61, concerning the objections to election. Paul answers in two ways. By the way, in the objections to election, when Paul says um, at page uh, 58, number 14, what shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? How would you more likely put that in our day and age? Is there injustice in God's part? What's Paul, what's Paul asking? What's he, what's he saying? I know what my readers are thinking. It's not what? It's not fair. He's asking, is it fair? Election, now back page 61, stems entirely from God's mercy. when his justice otherwise would leave everyone deserving hell and eternal judgment. That's the gist of verses 14 through 18. Election and its counterpart, reprobation, what do we mean by that? That God passes over in his justice those he does not choose to save in his mercy reveal the totality of his glorious attributes, including his power and wrath. Who are you, O oh man, to answer that to God? Wayne Grudem writes, we really have no right to impose on God 
our intuitive sense of what is appropriate among human beings. Whenever scripture begins to treat this area, it goes back to God's sovereignty as creator and says he has the right to do with his creation as he wills. If God ultimately decided to create some creatures to be saved and others not to be saved, then that was his sovereign grace and we have no moral or scriptural basis on which we can insist that it was not there. Fact and answer to objections, rather minimal approach, all I have time to do. There is an entire course in our spoken sequence during the equipping hour that deals with these five points for 13 weeks, and I can commend that to you if you're still around by the time that that rolls up again. Questions, comments about unconditional election in the plan of God? I need a smiling. Overwhelming? No? Okay. Well, I'm just sure it's God's sovereignty. You know, do you have this, this idea of free will or nothing? Well, I'm not sure I would go that far. Well, but um, free according to maybe, maybe my nature, but not free correct. completely unbiased. Right. right. Yeah. The Lord has to do something in order for the will to have a desire to exercise yeah. its choice to repent and believe that's where the rest of the tulip comes in. We will do what our innate nature compels sure. us to do. The will always is sovereign in that regard unless God gives a new heart, turns the heart of stone into a heart of flesh to use Ezekiel. Then we have a choice. Then we can make that choice, right. Right. It's going to be a bad thing. <laughs> we, well, yes. <laughs> True. Before we didn't have a choice. Mm -hmm. Now at least we have an opportunity. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that just brings a point, you know, before you become a believer, can we do any good? Is there anything good that you can there is good that you can do in the sense that well, people do humanitarian things all the time. Is it based on faith or in terms of its representation before a holy God who, under whose wrath we abide as sinners. And when Romans 14, 23 says, whatsoever is not of faith is sin, the answer is no, not ultimately good. Good in the sense of which human beings judge good, absolutely but good in the sense of whether it is from the glad-hearted submission of faith to God who gives the capacity to do good? No. This is where the blindness can come in that we don't understand the reality of, of how our sins so permeates and affects our being before God. All right? Well, if that wasn't challenging, maybe this will be. Let's go on to the L. Stands for what? Do we recall? Limited atonement. Limited atonement. What might be a problem with putting it that way? Now that we're coming to talk about if this is what the Father planned, here is sending the Son to accomplish the saving of this grand number of sinners in his, his perfect plan. What, what might be a problem with a word like this? Well, and God chose, he, he wanted everybody to be saved. Okay, if you're thinking that, that certainly is counter to that. Yeah. What might be another objection to using a word like 
Det kan komme med fodene med. Så er det sidste, det er bare det sidste, jeg glemte ikke til sidst på morgen, der det er How would you feel if I said to you as a Christian, you know, the atonement is really limited? What do you think, Christopher? Well, I I wouldn't be thinking this specifically in that sense as he's posing the question to me, but I know that it's raised the idea that Christ's blood is not sufficient for all. So in that sense, they're saying, so it wasn't good enough for X, Y, or Z. Right. If there's something lacking in it, we don't want to communicate there's anything lacking at all. We want to definitely communicate that it was entirely sufficient for what God determined it would do. And that's why we refer to it as particular redemption or definite atonement. This is arguably the most difficult of the doctrines of grace and usually the most controversial. As we prepare to look at this controversial doctrine, this may also be a good time to mention that as we go over the various doctrines of the church, we are not saying that you must agree in exact detail with everything that is said here in order to become a member. What we are saying is that you must know what we teach and be willing to submit to that teaching. That is to say, not create conflict or disunity over the truth that is there. If it's that big a deal, you need to move on somewhere else. Then sometimes people do. If you're in a process of still trying to wait on the Lord and discover more about these things, and you can be in that in-between stage as you continue to study, we're happy for you to be here. We've had people that come in, and this one can be the most challenging of them. But let me explain that in a passage that I don't have listed here for you. Turn your Bibles to Hebrews 12. Hebrews chapter 12, verses um, 1 and 2. <coughs> I have a reader. Hebrews 12, 1 and 2. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Thank you, Jim. What's one of the most intriguing, surprising, stunning thoughts in verse 2? Well, you won't? I'm sorry. Okay. That this, is, this is why we're looking to Jesus. He does this. Okay. What about the work that Jesus has done? Uh-huh. And what was his attitude toward it? He endured it because of the joy that was set before him. It, it, I would challenge you just to think for a minute. What could be joyful about the cross and what Jesus endured? I think this is the answer. Jesus knew what he was doing and what it would accomplish. It would accomplish the salvation of every one the Father had given to him and elected for salvation. That's why it was great joy to the Lord to endure the cross and despise the shame. This doctrine speaks to the design of the atonement 
what God intended to do in the death of his son, and that Jesus did it. Jesus died for a select number of people, those whom the Father specifically had given him. His atonement actually accomplished their salvation, and therefore all of these are certain to be saved. He did not accomplish salvation for those who will not be in heaven, or they would be there. There were only three possible answers to the question of the design of the atonement. It was not an actual atonement, but only something that makes atonement possible. It only becomes actual when the sinner believes. Two, it was actual for the sins of the elect, which result that these and only these are delivered from sin's penalty. Or three, it was actual for the sins of all people as a result that all people are saved. We talked about what this view is earlier in this subject. What is that called? Universalism. Universalism. You may know that we reject that. All evangelicals fall in one of the other two um, categories. Jesus died to create the possibility of salvation for those who would believe, or Jesus died to secure the reality of the elect. Um, I am, as you will quickly see, a terrible artist, but sometimes I think um, this uh, diagram can be helpful if God the Father in his plan sending his son, the one being seized the cross, it's not dramatic enough, I told you this is not my skill, this broad reality that stops short of securing the salvation of sinful man. He must bridge the gap the rest of the way through faith. doctrine of death and atonement says it's a smaller purposeful redemption but it goes all the way in securing the salvation of the elect does not design if you don't get this concept of the purpose and design of Christ's death this will not make any sense to you Places of agreement, top of page 62, on the atonement include, it is of infinite value. It is of infinite value. It's not limited in any way. Its benefits extend to all people, benefits though short of salvation. One example would be 1 Timothy 4, verse 10. For to this end we toil and strive because we have set our hope on the living God, who is the Savior of all people, especially those who believe. There are many ways in which God is the Savior, deliverer of all people. The fact that every unbeliever on the planet right now is not immediately obliterated by the wrath of God. He is acting as their one who is gracious toward them, allowing time for repentance and faith. 
but he is especially the Savior in terms of accomplishing the redemption of those who believe the elect. Three, it does not provide for the salvation of all people. Again, if Jesus died for all, all would be saved because of the power and purpose and effect of the atonement. In order to deny the heretical view of universalism, we must understand the atonement to be limited in one way or another. Either in its effect, Christ died for all, but not all get saved, or in its scope, Jesus did not die for all, but all for whom he died will be saved. There's the bridge illustration I just poorly drew for you. There's the, that's the bridge illustration that yeah, I just, oh, scope. Scope, sorry, SC, yeah. Again, a matter of design. What was it? Everybody limits the atonement in one way or another. Otherwise, we have universalism. It's limited either in uh, its effects and what it accomplished or in its scope. The terms, finally, the Bible, not finally, sorry. The terms the Bible uses to speak of the death of Christ, redemption, propitiation, that's a $64 um, theological word. Propitiation is uh, an averting of God's wrath. When I approached Jan and asked her if she'd be interested in getting to know me personally, her response after she picked herself up off the floor was shocked that her pastor was coming to her and asking her to consider that was propitious. It was favorable. Okay, so if her in sin, under the wrath of God, she is not propitious towards us. Wrath of God abides upon us, and if not for the work of Christ on the cross and our faith in that, he will judge us in eternal hell forever. So propitiation is part of the grand act of redemption, that God now is, and, and this, should be good, this is good news, you know, he, li he likes you. If, you know, he had a refrigerator, your picture would be on it. He, he's fond of you. You're a beloved child. Adoption is another one of these. Um, reconciliation, atonement. They lend weight. W-E-I-G-H-T. To understanding its design and actually accomplishing these extraordinary things on our behalf. When we speak of the atonement, we're talking about that Jesus actually does these marvelous things. He redeems us. He propitiates the wrath of God in us. He reconciles us to our enemies and we're made at peace with God. He atones, covers all our sins. These are weighty terms about the design of what was actually accomplished by Jesus' work on the cross. John Murray writes, the doctrine of the atonement must be radically revised if as atonement it applies to those who finally perish, as well as those who are heirs of eternal life. In that event, we should have to dilute the grand categories in terms of which the scripture defines the atonement and deprive them of their most precious import and glory. This we cannot do. The saving ef efficacy of expiation, forgiveness, propitiation, reconciliation, and redemption is too deeply embedded in these concepts, and we dare not eliminate this efficacy. The doctrine of particular atonement does not deny the free offer of the gospel. This is so important. 
here's how I best can illustrate this. I have a very close friend who used to live in my neighborhood who's in his 80s, and the first day I met him was at the book club that we used to have in our neighborhood. And the very first time I came to the book club, the assignment was to read a biography. So I showed up with American Caesar, the story of um, Douglas MacArthur, and I'm looking across the room at this gentleman that I've seen in the neighborhood but I've never met, and we're all introducing ourselves, and we come to him, he says, hi, my name is Les, I'm an atheist but a Jew by birth, and I believe that all religion is, how do you put it, um, hogwash. Looking straight at me, I thought, he must know I'm the Baptist pastor in the <laughs> neighborhood. <laughs> but it turns out he didn't, because after he came over and introduced himself, I said, hi, I'm Les, nice to meet you. He said, hi, I'm Kurt. He said, where do you live? I'm up on Third Street. What do you do? I'm the pastor of Orlando's Grace. <laughs> we have become fast friends. We go to lunch on a regular basis. He has been here for my son's funeral, my first wife's funeral, came to our wedding. I have shared the gospel with Les multiple times. He came by the church. He's done volunteer work for us. I've tried to bridge with him. He's actually um, collated and put in notebooks a number of these uh, binders, for not yours, uh, but others. He's he threatened to sabotage them at times on me. But one, one week when he was in here, he came across this. He bought it, took it home and read it. Next time we had lunch, he said, nope, I'm locked out. I said, you don't know that. You don't know what God's plan is. I keep making to him the free offer of the gospel. Repent and believe. Jesus said, Matthew eleven twenty eight. you could probably all quote it or pretty close to, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, I will give you rest. That offer goes out everywhere. Here's where people get in trouble when they, when they conclude that this kind of teaching, if you label it Reformed or Calvinist or whatever you labor it, means that you don't go out and liberally share the gospel with all people. Oh, yes, you do. Because you have no idea what the plan of God is. He knows what the plan is. What he tells us to do is to preach the gospel to all the creatures and let the Lord sort out what he's going to do in somebody's life. And I'm not giving up on less. Because who knows? Maybe on his deathbed or before. I hope I will get to know and see that day. But if he doesn't, Jesus did not die for him the same way he died for me. Not because I'm any better, but the, the atonement actually secured my salvation. If he is not chosen, then God will pass over him and allow him justly to die in his sins. And he will, God will not be guilty of anything. God would not be guilty of anything if he let everybody die in their sins. That is the whole point of sovereign grace and how great it is that he acts in mercy to save as many as he does. Scriptural support for particular redemption. Matthew 121. There's a lot of verses here. And he will save his people from their sins. Let's turn over to page 63. John 10, 11, I'm the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. John 13, 1, now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart of this world to be to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. John 17, 1 and 2 and 9, when Jesus had spoken this word, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, the Father 
the hours come to glorify your son, that the son may glorify you, since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. I am praying for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. Let's jump down to... Hebrews 2.17, top of page 64. <laughs> Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of his people. Revelation 5.9, they sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll to open its seals for you are slain, and by your blood you ransom people for God from every tribe, language, and people and nation. Thoughts? Questions? Comments? It's a lot to chew on, I know. And it was Jesus' joy to pay the penalty for those whom the Father gifted to him to make his own glorious people. John 17, actually the whole book of John, is I, I think it took me seven years to preach through it, which frustrated some people a lot, but I just had a hard time going very fast. There were so many different things that spoke to the purposefulness of the Father and the plan and the execution of that plan by Jesus in the atonement. And the upper room discourse, uh, 13, 14, 15, 16, and then the high priestly prayer in 17, testify. If you, if, you, if you go to those texts, if you read, for example, through the book of John, wanting to say, okay, I want to be Berean-like, is this, pers is this perspective truly here? I, I think it's hard to deny. Um, though I grant you, if you've, if you've grown up with an idea of this other approach that Jesus creates the potential is something you and I have to add to it. This is why coming back to total depravity and understanding that capacity is not there unless God gives you the gift of faith. Thank you. <laughs> what a transition. Let's go to effectual grace. Here we're tweaking again. Instead of using a word like irresistible, what might be wrong with that? Well, there's nothing wrong with it if you understand it correctly. What might be a stumbling block to saying the, the grace of God is irresistible? I'm sorry? Okay. Okay. Uh, and what might somebody think that's a, a problem? Exactly. That nobody comes to Jesus kicking and screaming. That's not what we mean. So we prefer to use a term here like effectual. 
or efficacious grace. You with me on page 64? God's call to repentance and faith goes out to the whole world. That's the general call that we just talked about. However, due to our depraved nature left to ourselves, we will freely reject Christ. The Holy Spirit will, however, call all those who are elect with an irresistible grace that is absolutely effective. Through this work of the Spirit, every chosen one will come to faith. They will choose God, as you blank, choose God as a regenerating work of the Spirit. God's free gift to his children affects their salvation. Boyce and Reichen write, what they mean is that we do not resist effectively, that when God calls us to faith in Jesus Christ, he calls effectively, succeeding in his purpose to save us. The grace of God's calling is overwhelmingly efficacious. A good way of expressing this is to say that the Holy Spirit regenerates us, giving us a new nature, as a result of which we naturally do what the new nature does, that is, we believe the gospel, repent of our sin, and trust in Christ unto salvation. Here's an example of the general call resisted effectively. Will someone read Acts 7.51? Stephen is preaching. You stiff-necked people uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit, as your father did, so do you. You can resist. But there is an example as well of the call not resisted effectively in the life of Saul, the great persecutor of the church. Will someone read Acts 9, 4 to 6? The difference? Acts 9.15. Who'd like to read it, please? But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine, to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. So Saul, at the end of Acts 7, is holding the cloaks for those who are stoning Stephen, remember? He's a massive persecutor of the church. In Acts 9, he's on his way to Damascus to do greater harm to believers. What happens on the way to Damascus in Acts 9? Yeah, blinded and thrown off his horse, right? That's why he says, who are you? I am Jesus, who you're persecuting. Get into the city, and you'll be told what to do. What made the difference? When Ananias is challenged to go and bind up Saul's wounds and take care of them, Ananias balks and says, I don't want to do that. That guy's putting people in prison and, and supervising their stoning. Why in the world would I do that? What's, what's the Lord's answer? He's a chosen instrument of mine. And because I chose him and Christ died for him, the Spirit has come and worked him being born again, to use John chapter 3 language. Turn over to page 65. Here we're getting at Tom's question. There are two kinds of call. A general call, also referred to as the external and universal call, left to ourselves apart from sovereign grace, it remains resisted. John 7, 37. On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. 
Can I tell you guys the story of my trip to Africa and preaching the gospel at a Muslim village? These, these kind of run together for me, and so sometimes I forget. I had been to uh, coastal Kenya among the Jigo people twice now. The first time was for the dedication of the New Testament in the Shijigo language that Orlando Grace had helped fund. Still one of the highlights of my time at Orlando Grace, to stand in the middle of a Muslim town and, and have Shijigo people come, come um, parading into the park area with the women leading with boxes on their heads with copies of the New Testament in their heart language. These people never had a copy of the New Testament before. The joy was ecstatic, and we were all dancing in the middle of the park, and the three of us white guys that were there were in the middle dancing with them. It was just a glorious celebration. Well, I went back a few years later because a previous team had promised the village of Mrema a well. Water was huge. The women in this village were washing miles at dawn to get water and bring it back to use during the day. Well, we funded a well. And when the well was completed, we were invited by the Muslim imam of that village to come and dedicate the well. Well, the tribal chief was to come and represent this village. And so four of us went. And I was invited to preach in this village. It was during Ramadan. And at my seat sat the imam. And I preached this text. And I said, whenever you come, and draw water from this well, which we give you as a gift. It is yours. Because of the work of God in us, through his son Jesus, we love you and we want to share this with you. I want you to remember, every time you come and you pump that well, and you fill up a bucket with water to take to your household, remember that Jesus came to quench a thirst that lasts forever. Drink at him. I have no idea to this day, what the consequences of that were. All I know is that I made that general offer of the gospel. But I will tell you this, that anybody in that village predestined me for the foundation of the world to believe Jesus has already died for and will be saved. Because the specific call, also referred to as the internal or effectual call, issues the invitation and provides the willingness or ability to respond. Roman, an example of that would be Romans 8.30, and those whom he predestined, he also called, those whom he called, he also justified, and those whom he justified, he also called. Yes, there are two different kinds of call. I will give you one final example before we close. When I was a student at Penn State in my sophomore year, I started taking classical Greek because I thought that I was going to be a Lutheran pastor. I will tell you right up front, I was not a believer at the time, but I felt called to the ministry. I know, it's a strange story. I took classical Greek because I was trying to get ready for New Testament Greek when I would finally go to a Lutheran seminary. A young man in that group, it was a small class, there weren't that many people interested, even on the campus of thousands, befriended me. And one night he asked if he could come up to the dorm. He came up to the door and we met in the common area. And he drew that bridge illustration, a variation on that. He was part of a, um, I did not know this, he was part of a parachurch group you may have heard of, the Navigators. They do a lot of ministry with uh, military individuals. And he shared the gospel with me that night. He gave me the free offer of the gospel. 
it felt like it went right over my head. I'm sure the Lord was planting seeds and watering the gospel in my heart, but I did not believe. But there was a general call made to me that day. A year later, in my living room on December 14th, 10.30 a.m., another man came, opened the New Testament, shared Christ with me. I got another free offer of the gospel. I repented. I believed. I was baptized an hour and a half later. I was out sharing my faith that night with a soul winning team, as they like to call it. And here I am today. What was the difference? The effectual call came at God's sovereignly appointed time and turned my heart of stone into a heart of flesh. Why did that happen? Because Jesus died to save me on Calvary, and as the Father said, Heffelfinger is mine by grace and mercy. I'm giving him to my son, and I have a plan for him and his life. And I will see it through to consummation, which will get to us with the P, perseverance of the saints, that we'll pick up with next week. I'm out of time. Um, we'll, we'll also allow for some more, any more questions that you might have on this. Um, and I just thank you for the, just the privilege of as feeble an attempt as it is to try to lay out some of this to you. Hopefully to whet your appetite to study, dig deep, see what the scriptures say about the glorious work of God and salvation. Father, we thank you for who you are, what you've done. We thank you that of the cross we can say, like Jacob of old, after he woke up from that ladder, we look at Calvary and say, surely the Lord is in this place. I didn't know it before, but I know it now. And it is an awesome place. Thank you for redemption. Thank you for propitiation. Thank you for reconciliation. Thank you for expiation. Thank you for justification, for adoption, for everything that you've done. We love you and we praise you, glorious God. Give grace now as we gather together for corporate worship and praise. Have your purpose and will among us in Jesus' name.